Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 379th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that has was amassing treasures to summon the profit dragon long before it was fashionable. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I am your host, James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host this week, making a return appearance as Cliff is on vacation, is Derek the Dark Mage at Oko Assassin on Twitter. And we are here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey everyone, glad to be back on the podcast. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where this is something I always look forward to. Maybe don't always have time, but when I can stop by and talk with James, it's a definite highlight of the week. Uh, but before I jump into all of that, I do want to remind listeners that the show is produced by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all its cool nerdy stuff in stock including all the best in magic the gathering singles sealed product and a plethora of other collectibles use the promo code finance5 during checkout at coolstuffinc.com to save five percent off your order and support this podcast derek so good to have you back what is on our agenda this week all right james well it looks like not a lot has changed since i left we got four segments as usual first segment we're going to start off with the mtgo metagame week in review and actually this one we're going to talk maybe a little bit in paper we'll see uh, after that, moving on to segment two, where we'll talk about the movers of the week and uh, why we think we these cards saw significant gains. After that, segment three, our cards to watch, where we both will share which cards we have our eyes on at the moment. And finally, we'll wrap up with segment four, our topics of the week. And this week, we're going to be doing Lord of the Rings spoilers and all the uh, impactful box toppers that come with it. So with that out of the way, why don't we jump into the MTGO metagame week in review? As you said, we do have a little bit of paper content for everybody this week. There was a big modern tournament over in Europe. This one was in Italy with 432 players in the Four Seasons tournament uh, this past weekend. Uh, It was creativity that came out on top here with Shardless Rhinos in second and fifth, Jeskai Breach making a paper appearance in third, the four-color Omnath Elementals build in fourth, just doing a double check here to see if they had any copies of Nyssa in the main. Does not look like they did. Yogmoth was in sixth. Hardened Scales with uh, the new version of the Ozolith in seventh. And Blue-Red Merktide rounding up a fairly standard-looking top eight over in Italy. Yeah, per, not, not a lot of surprises here. Um, I think actually the, the biggest surprise, there's the, the, the Cord Toolbox deck. Um, you know, it doesn't look as toolboxy as, as the name presents. Uh, it's really more kind of a... It's just green, uh, black, Yawgmoth. Yeah, it's just a green, black, Yawgmoth, as I can tell. So the name is a little, a little disingenuous, it, but... It is cute that back. they have a Shielder of the Apocalypse in the sideboard. Mm, yeah. I haven't, I, I haven't seen that card in Modern much. Yeah, haven't either, but it is good, man. I was playing, I played at the regional championship in Dallas this weekend, and oh yeah, I, I ran up against a lot of Shieldred in uh, in those matchups. Rakdos was everywhere, but uh, every time it stuck, you know, it's very, very good. I'm sure it's similar and moderate as long as it can stick around. Speaking of Pioneer, over in the Pioneer Showcase Challenge back on Magic Online, we had Blue-White Control taking uh, down the challenge 
in first, Blue White Spirits with two Invasion of Gobicon in second, Lotus Field was third and fourth, Black Red Midrange in fifth, Black Red Sacrifice uh, in sixth, and then probably the spiciest decks of the week are the Enigmatic Incarnation, Fires of Invention, decks that have been floating around for a while, making top eights here and there. I flagged this one because it has four copies of Sparrow's Headquarters. Uh, and, the, you know, the Triumphs have consistent EDH demand. Often when they show up in Modern, it's usually as a one of. A lot of the Pioneer decks will run a one or a two of of some of them. So to see four of of a given one in a format that's seeing a reasonable amount of paper play might suggest that Sparrow's could take off in front of the others sometime this year. Yeah, I mean, just the Triumphs, or whatever I call them, the non-Triumph Triumphs, you know, as long as they don't get a reprint, I think they're going to continue to see pressure. Um, a lot of the standard decks are playing, you know, two or three of them as four ofs, which typically didn't matter in the past, but if standard's going to be, in, uh, you know, going for three years, if they're going to try to do a, a um, Pro Tour or champion uh, regional championships with standard, uh, that could also put pressure on them as well. Five color bring to light, obviously also uh, a thing here rounding out the top eight. There were a couple of other big paper tournaments this weekend, so we figured we might take a look at those. There was a fairly large regional championship at DreamHack Dallas. What was the format for that? Was it Pioneer? Yeah, so it was Pioneer. Uh, it was about, I, th- I want to say at the end, it was about 1,100 or just above that participants. Um, I think it was about 1,000 heading into the weekend and then they did read uh they did um limit last chance qualifiers that kind of boosted the numbers too so i think we wound up right around 1100 uh it was a good event uh generally speaking i think everyone was in a pretty happy mood uh had a really good vibe but it was a little slow uh, in terms of actual convention um management it was i think the day one took about 12 hours so it was a long, arduous tournament um, for anyone that was day one and then made day two, but it was a good time. Gotcha. All right. Looks like Gruel Vehicles took this one down, beating Racto Sacrifice in the finals. Uh, there was also a Demir Rogues build in the semis and a Mono Green Devotion. And then there was Enigmatic Fires, Azoria Spirits, uh, Mono Blue Spirits, and another Racto Sacrifice rounding out that top eight. Up here in Canada, we also had a regional championship in Vancouver, and it looks like this one was taken down by Azorius Spirits in the Pioneer Field, beating out Azorius Lotus Field. There was also a Rakdos mid-range and a Rakdos sacrifice list in the top four, and rounding out the top eight, it looks like we had a pair of mono-green devotion decks uh, and another Rakdos sacrifice deck and another Rakdos mid-range deck so fairly standard looking big tournament up here in western Canada moving right along into segment two we've got our top paper movers of the week we will kick that off with a uh, Zenk Paladin Unbroken from the D&D Secret Layer going 22 to 30 dollars in non-foil 36 percent gains there Almost everything else on this list this week is a foil card. We have Scurry Oak Foils out of MH2 going 325 to 450. Fairly modest 40% gains there. Uh, on the back, if I'm not mistaken, of it being part of a two-card combo with a new Lord of the Rings card. We have Fires of Invention Foil Extended Arts, which is almost certainly a spec from back down the road on this cast, going 12 to 16 on the back of the success of the Enigmatic Fires decks in Pioneer. 
Palladium mirror foils out of Iconic Masters still have some trailing demand going 2 to $3 on the back of the mirror builds that popped up during the Brothers War release. And then Lord of the Rings hype is in full swing and Treefolk cards uh, look like they were key Treefolk cards look like they were largely bought out, especially if they were from the fabled rare foils of the Lorwyn block, Treefolk Harbinger foils going 15 to 25, Bosk Banneret going 10 to 20. These are things that have all been targeted already in the past when Doran the Siege Tower was released and so forth. We also have Historian's Boon out of... Uh, Dominaria United Commander decks. Uh, I think the extended art foil going five, or could just be the regular foil. I'm not sure which one that was. I think it's regular foils. Five to ten dollars. That one is a Tom Bombadil card for EDH. Jeskai Ascendancy foil etched out of Double Masters 2022. Eight to eighteen foil etched rares and mythics are some of the hardest to pull cards out of the Double Masters 2022 collector boosters, and they've been targeted for the last few months as a result. Finally, at the top of the heap, we have Temple Altasaur foils out of Rivals of Ixalan, $8 to $40, although I don't think anybody's actually paid $40 for one yet. Uh, this is quite obviously an Ixalan dinosaur spec that's been targeted over the last four to six weeks or so. Uh, I'm having trouble believing anybody is going to feel the need to upgrade to a Foil Temple Aldosaur for their Dinosaur decks this fall, but I guess we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, it seems like a lot of you know movement driven by the hype, as usual, but uh, no big surprises here on my end. Throwing on over to Top Magic Online Movers of the Week, Lotus Field doing well over the weekend seems to have driven the price of the M20 version of that card on Magic Online to nearly a double up or a little bit above that, 15 ticks or so to just over 30. It's in 25% of the Pioneer Showcase top eight this weekend, so no huge surprises there. Cephalid Illusionist was a four of in Cephalid Breakfast, which was a first place legacy deck in the Hong Kong tournament that went on on June 2nd. And I imagine people were fooling around with it on Magic Online afterwards as a result. Went from 0.39 ticks to 1.98, 408% gains on that card. Discontinuity was another big mover. M21 rare going from 0.26 ticks to 2.49, 857% gains. On the back of it being a four of in the top eight Canadian Pioneer Tourney where the blue-white control deck that we referred to earlier was running four discontinuity in the main uh, as a way of shutting down opponents' turns in the mid and late games and potentially stopping bad things from happening when they were interrupted on their own turns. That's pretty crazy tech. I, I'll be very curious to see if we see that again, but uh, that was a first for me. Because it costs six if you're doing it on their turn, and it costs two. It's because it's four or less, so it's one blue, one colorless if it's your turn. Got it. Yeah, crazy stuff. Uh, you also wanted to flag Memory Deluge here? Yeah, Memory Deluge went from about 12 to 20. It was actually a little higher than 20, uh, but it's come down a little bit since. And, you know, this is one of those where it's just a card that sees a lot of play. Um, and in particular, so because of the standard bannings, there's been a number of card movements uh, on Magic Online. Because, for example, uh, Mana White Blue Control and Standard now just top aided or top forward. A challenge this weekend running you know i think it was three or four copies of memory deluge full set of watering emperor number of other kind of key control cards uh and i think that's driving some of the prices here and so it's important to remember on magic online standard does matter when there are big changes in the meta or new decks emerging 
Deluge is rotating this fall, right? Uh, no, nothing's rotating this fall. Right. So because so because of the three year extension, I thought. I th- but I thought the first rotation was still normal, but then everything else wasn't rotating. No. No, I don't. I don't believe so. They are going to do so every year. They're going to have a ban period in the fall where it is where um, they're going to they're going to do the majority of any bannings that occur. And then in addition to that, they're going to have uh, emergency ban periods like quarterly throughout the year. But the assumption being that, you know, unless it's something really egregious like Belladar Guardian combo, they're, they're not going to do things mid year and then everything would happen in the fall. And I think a lot of the idea behind that would be maybe doing some bands that you might not have to do, but would, you know, potentially provide some fresh, uh, you know, movement in the format. But that is remains to be seen. Memory Deluge seems like the kind of card that might get a reprint in another set during that extra year that it's in. But it has flashback, right? So that does limit where they can put it. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I, I expect the one thing that this could be uh, reprinted in is a challenger deck, either standard or pioneer, um, where they you know kind of preprint one of the popular decks uh, just in it total minus some of the key expensive cards. That said, I don't remember where I saw it, but I thought I remember seeing at least in pioneer they're not planning on doing those this year. Um, so it might be safe, but that is one if they do a blue white. Um, pioneer or standard deck i mean this seems like a sure bet to be in since it's a rare not a mythic all right we can move right along to cards to watch we've just got a few things we want to go over here before we dive into the fresh mega batch of lord of the Rings spoilers i'm going to kick things off with uh an oldie but a goodie that i'm sure has been called a couple times on this cast over the years and has been talked about in mtg finance quarters for better part of a decade it's a reserve list card by the name of Aluren. And it basically says, any player may play a creature card with total casting cost three or less whenever she could, he or she could play an instant without paying its casting cost. So basically creatures three and under are free. And this applies to everybody. The thing about that is there's a really good commander in the Lord of the Rings cards that have been revealed, Aragorn the Uniter, which is red, green, white, blue for a 5-5 human noble. Whenever you cast a white spell, create a 1-1 white human soldier creature token. If you cast a blue spell, you scry two. If you cast a red spell, you do three to target opponent. And whenever you cast a green spell, target creature gets plus four, plus four until end of turn. So I was immediately looking at the plane shift commons and uncommons that gate. There's like a three, four for red and a green that comes into play and you have to return a green or red creature to your hand when you do so. Mm-hmm. Well, if you just keep casting that over over again into Aragorn, then he keeps doing three to an opponent and giving something else plus four, plus four till end of turn. So those are obviously good in there. But Aluren, of course, is obviously also obviously good in there because then you can take all those gating creatures and just keep bouncing them repeatedly and wipe out the table. Interesting. Sounds fun. Kind of down. So Aluren is a reserveless card. Zero chance it's going to get a reprint, either in the Lord of the Rings decks or anywhere else. And it's been drifting down since the last time it spiked. Seems to me if Aragorn sees sees enough build play, then you're going to see this go 50 to 75 again in a hurry as people realize that there are very few substitutes for this card. There is a uh, a blue card that we were talking about with Cliff last week, where if you pay put a creature into play, you can pay one to bounce another creature. That one probably goes in the deck as well, but Aluren does the whole thing for free. So it'll be the the first card you reach for when you're trying to get crazy with Aragorn. Yeah, and just a reminder to listeners who don't play Legacy. I mean, this is a three of in kind of a main, you know, fringe, but uh, definitely a a longstanding Legacy deck. And you don't see it a lot on the online meta because 
it's a click heavy combo um, you have to do it over and over and over again and in paper you can just say i'm going to play i think it's cavern harpy and you know other creatures and you just kind of loop it uh as well as um the Azurek, the Archlich. So if you play Azurek and just keep bouncing him based on his, uh, when he enters the battlefield, you know, if you don't complete the Tomb of Annihilation, you return it to its owner's hand. You just basically keep doing that over and over and over again until you win the game. Um, and you can't do that on Magic Online. So this is a deck where people play it in paper. You know, it's kind of a pet deck for folks. Uh, but for a reserveless card that you know has very limited supply, that three of in in Legacy can matter uh, at least a little bit. It only really sells onesie twosie copies a day in Near Mint LP on TCG Player. And if we're looking at Near Mint and light played copies posted on that site, you're looking at 124 listings. If you go to Near Mint only, you're talking about 46. So it's a relatively rare card in Near Mint. Yeah. It's higher than I would expect for an older card like that. Well, I mean, most of those are sub near mint copies. There's only 46 right. when we look at near mints, and they're in the ramp from uh, you know one copy posted at $48 on up to the $65 plus range is not very long at all. And that tells me if there's any pressure on the card and people clue in on it or Command Zone flags it as a card to include in Aragorn, then you could easily see 50 or 100 copies move in a couple weeks. Right. EDH players generally prefer near mint you think or like play yeah in, in yeah. general but i mean i i get a variety of requests sometimes people mm-hmm. just want to build the cheapest build the deck the cheapest way possible so i could see really cheap mp copies of of Aluren doing fine as well right yeah now worth pointing out that Aluren is only in 6200 or so edh rec decks part of that is a lot of players did not grow up even knowing this card existed and since it's reserveless and never gets a reprint, it's really not in the spotlight, hardly ever. As you said, legacy players and maybe some cube players are the only ones that really have this on their radar. And I think it, as a result, it's going to need some uh, coverage on social media and or YouTube to really get the ball rolling here on this for Aragorn. But if anything like that drops as people are doing their deck techs for the Aragorn builds, then I can see movement here pretty quickly. So this was Tempest, so it is a rare. I did look it up. So Tempest doesn't have the color coding. So I wanted to make sure it was actually a rare and not like a common uncommon. It is yeah, and, that, and that's the pre-Mythic era. So it's the right. you know, rarest card in the set. Alrighty. Yeah, I, I think that's, uh, I, I agree. You got to have some some spotlight on this to have it hit. Um, that said, the last time it spiked, which granted, uh, you know, most of the reserve lists went crazy, but the uh, last time it spiked went to 120 uh, it is, unlike some of the other reserve list cards, has fallen more than, you know, 50%. Looks like cl- almost close to 60%. So it's down above its original plateaus of, you know, for like a near copy of, you know, originally the old plateaus were 20, 30, 40. Now it's at 50-some. Uh, maybe there's a little room to drop, but it's not that much above what it was, you know, five years, four, four years ago or whatever. Sure. All right. What about your first selection this week? All right, so this is one is that, you know, I'm not supremely confident on, but I, I think it uh, has a good chance of success, which is uh, Sarah the Benevolent, um, specifically the uh, non-foil secret layer uh, that came out recently, is still on sale, and it is part of the same secret layer as Stoneforge Mystic, and so it's really pushed down the price 
to a point that's much below what the Modern Horizons 1 version is. So the Modern Horizons 1 version used to be super cheap, uh, has slowly moved up and is now about 12 bucks a piece. Uh, you can get this version, which has some interesting art. I don't know if I like it or not. It's it's quirky. Uh, but you can get this version for about 5 bucks, And I think that is not because of the card, because it has decent EDH numbers. It's you know got strong demand from the Modern Horizon 1's copies that I've sold. They sell pretty well. They sell pretty quickly. Uh, so I think it really is about, you know, it's in a package with Stoneforge Mystic. People, you know, they, they assign all the EV there, and this is kind of getting... Um, you know, the, the short end of the stick in the short term, but that drop is going to end here in a couple weeks. And when it does, I think this can slowly float up. And so my recommendation is a buy on the non-foils uh, at around $5 and just helping for a modest exit around 10 for a double up. It's Rebecca Gway art. So that's a point in its favor. I think uh, when you called it quirky, I think that's being generous. It, it really doesn't ring my bell. Uh, I much prefer the Maggie Villeneuve uh, original art from MH1. I wish there was a full art borderless version of that because that would have been really sweet. I'm not sure what will drive this version of Sarah the Benevolent up to a higher plateau. It's going to have to be some kind of fresh Angels Matters thing like we had with Giada last year where Angel-related cards would get a a reasonably decent push. Otherwise, I feel like this is going to be one of those secret layer cards that sits flat for quite some time until it eventually drains out. Now, that being said, if we look at the number of sales per day, if you're looking at the non-foils in Near Mint or Lightly Played, looks like TCG Player is usually good for one to three copies a day. So, you know, there's a, a, a steady trickle of demand, not unlike what we see for Aluren, where... Players stumble upon the version of the card despite TCG player doing their best efforts to hide it. And because it's Rebecca Gway, there is a art specific, you know, artist fan base there that will seek out her stuff as a as a collection. And there will be people that thought they were gonna buy this drop, forgot to buy it, and then are picking it up on trailing demand. All in all, what kind of timeline did you say? 12 months? I, I wouldn't be surprised if we get to 24 on this before it starts to edge up. Uh, and I think part of this depends on whether they leave the card entirely alone for a couple of years now. Yeah. So the timeline specifically, I, I was looking back at Modern Horizons and the low on that uh, was November or December 2019 at about six bucks. And by April 2021, um, so it, that was the low, but, you know, it kind of stayed stagnant for a little while. Uh, and then it got up to $10 on june 2020 and so it did go from like six to ten almost eleven uh and by 2021 mid mid year it was up to about 15 so that was one where i mean there was a long time period between that but it definitely floated up gradually over time just taking a look at what card kingdom's backing the card at they're currently offering 360 cash 468 credit so if you're grabbing them near five dollars you don't have tremendous risk Uh, especially if you go relatively shallow. All right. Well, what's your next pick, James? This is a card that's also been discussed multiple times on cast, uh, and it's on my radar again because the the, the more I look at all of the food synergy cards that they are just hurling onto the table, between the Sam and Frodo deck, which also has Pippin and Merry and uh, his uncle, 
and all of the cards in the main Lord of the Rings set. We are now getting 20 or 25 Food Matters cards in Abzan colors. And that makes something like an Academy Manufacturer uh, foil extended art look even better. It's got it's already been hollowing out because it's already a good card with a lot of the other token themes that have unfurled in Magic products since its release in MH2. You know, tons and tons of treasures. Now we're getting tons and tons of food. They'll double back on clues at some point. They gave us blood tokens along the way, and they're just going to keep doing that. To- tokens has been a very prominent sub-theme uh, across the entire game for years now. And it doesn't look like that's going to slow down anytime soon. Uh, Manufactor, if you're making food, clue, or treasure, you get one of each, right? So in the food deck, that means all the things that make food make you one of each of those things. And that's a, a really nice place to be, especially if you've got car- ways to make you sacrifice those, those tokens for value. It was already hollowing out. There's a steep ramp forming. There's just 55 near mint listings left on TCG Player. It's on 76,000 decks on EDH Rec, two years out from its original release. And that Sam and Frodo deck may or may not end up with regular copies of this in that have new art and a new name. But because it is an assembly worker and there aren't really mechanical creatures in Lord of the Rings, this might well be one of the relevant cards that gets left out of that deck. And as a result, if that is turns out to be true, I think that Foil Extended Art's going, say, 11 to 20 over the next 6 to 12 months could, you know, this is just extra pressure on top of an already solid trend line that's probably going to push you over the top. Unless, of course, they kick us a secret layer in two weeks that includes some spinoff of this. Right. So I know this was already reprinted once in the basic version in the Commander March of the Machine. Um, so they've already shown that interest, um, even though it's in Modern Horizons 2, which isn't that far out, in kind of reprinting this, putting it in the Commander deck. So uh, I do like that your pick is specifically focused on the uh, foil extended arts, because I think obviously we've seen now Commander decks can even include those, but obviously the, the likelihood of that is much, much lower. Um I, I think all the fundamentals are there. Like you said, it's just about whether a premium version gets reprinted somewhere. Um, I think this is one I would want to hold maybe in my back pocket until after Commander Masters later this year, just because, you know, who knows what they're going to do that set, but they're burning a lot of reprints lately. And so, you know, they're going to be finding things to put into that set. Um, and if it's already on their radar based on March of Machines inclusion, then maybe it shows up there as well. But otherwise, I think you're probably in the clear on this one. Commander Masters definitely matters. Secret Layer could matter as well, as I said. Um, but if it dodges both of those, or if you just move quickly and th- and the Sam and Frodo thing picks up. I mean, the Sam Frodo deck looks very, very synergistic right out of the box and looks very easy to upgrade with cards from the main set. And... As a result, people could be reaching for Academy Manufacturer Foil Extended Arts as, as quickly as three weeks from now, right? And then you would get and then you would get a solid month before you yeah, know get out before it matters. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and these have spiked before. I'm trying to remember what they got up to, but it looks like I mean you never can fully trust, but looking at one of the other sites, I think it got up to twenty seven and then twenty five ish uh in the past already, so it has those high plateaus previously um which shows people are willing to spend on it when the the timing is right 
Alrighty, let's move on over to our extended weekly topic from last week. We are still on Lord of the Rings Tales of Middle-Earth spoilers. They have been dropping tons and tons of cards, and then there was a whole bunch of cards uh, spoiled outside of the planned release pattern on whatnot this afternoon as somebody got their hands on early packs they really shouldn't have had their hands on and started spoiling a bunch of cards that people hadn't seen yet. So we've seen tons and tons of cardboard over the last four or five days or so and I gotta say we haven't seen the whole set yet but I'm already confident in saying that I think this set is going to be the most impactful commander set since Modern Horizons 2. By my count there are 30 to 50 solid playables that within a year will be in 8,000 plus decks on EDH rec or something. Mm Mm-hmm. There's just, they've really, I don't see a lot for modern in here, although some of the cards are sneaky good, and I think people are going to be surprised when, when they start showing up. And some of the themes, like like food, seem too silly for modern, but as we know, there are Asmo decks kind of waiting in the wings, just looking for one or two more uh, synergistic pieces to kind of put them over the top. So for the for the most part, I'm focused on the EDH playability of most of this stuff but you know i am on the lookout looking for for things that could have competitive impact let's jump in on some of the uh best reveals from the last week since we cliff and i last talked there is sauron's ransom one blue black instant for what is basically an upgraded uh factor fiction Choose an opponent, they look at the top four cards of your library and separate them into a face-down pile and a face-up pile. Put one pile into your hand, the other into your graveyard, and the ring tempts you. Any of these cards that are basically under-costed or upgraded versions of previously good spells that also have the ring tempts you tacked on are just all upside. Because all of the bonuses from the ring tempts you are good bonuses. And the more you get tempted, the more bonuses you get. And then once you've got the four of them, you've got them, your ring bearers have them until the end of the game. And ring tempting you just lets you switch ring bearers. So in general, you're going to want to play them together. But even if you only get the first bonus, if the rest of the card, like this one, is already good. Where, you know, if you're playing this in Maldrotha right. or Maldrotha or something, where there's no winning for the opponent... You're giving me you're giving me one to three cards in hand, and then whatever you tried to deny me by tricking me into not picking it is going into my yard where I'm going to recurse it anyway. I mean, this is just an auto include in a deck like that. Is it just a strict upgrade minus the color requirements? Uh, I think in with fact or fiction we get to choose, right? We get to choose the piles and then they pick one. Yes, I think that is correct. And I think that it's all face up on Factor Fiction. Factor Fiction reads, reveal the top four cards of your library, an opponent separates these cards into two piles. So there's no face down information with Factor Fiction. So Right, right. But but there's in my some other versions that are similar to this, I know, but I can't think yeah. of them up top. Well like at, Atreus Oracle of, of Half Truths or whatever is is a similar card on a three two menace body for four. Yeah. Uh, was just playing that this weekend in Mildrotha for that matter. So, I mean, Sauron's Ransom just looks great because in the decks that are going to want this kind of effect, you're going to, it's just all upside. There's like four cards worth of value that are going to get set up to be used. Uh, They also showed the Grey Havens as an uncommon legendary land. That's a little awkward, uncommon legendaries. But when the Grey Haven enters the battlefield, you scry one. It doesn't come into play tapped. It makes colorless by default. 
and you can add one mana of any color among legendary creature cards in your graveyard. So in something like Jota the Unifier, where all your creatures are legendary, this is going to scry early and only make colorless, but as soon as they kill the first dangerous thing you play, which will usually be a good two or three casting cost uh, mana creature that they feel is accelerating you too quickly, or and if they fail to do that, an early Jota or something else... If it's not Joda, you're going to let it go to the graveyard, and then this thing turns into a city, of, a painless city of brass. You know, the thing that gets me is Watsi literally came out and said, "We're we're done, generally speaking, making legendary lands. Like we don't like it. We don't like what it does to play patterns. This and that. And then they just keep making new cycles, not even individual legendary lands. I'm just like, I don't, whatever. That's fine. I don't. I don't even care about the policy. But I just thought it was kind of amusing after." seeing at Neo and then here and I think maybe in one other place. Yeah, so they, they also showed us Arwen, Weaver of Hope. One double green, two one. It's a legendary creature, Elf Noble. This is just one of like eight cards in the last year that play into the Counters Matters themes that are so popular with Atraxa builds, where each other creature you control enters the battlefield with a number of additional plus one plus one counters on it equal to Arwen Weaver of Hope's toughness. Well, she only starts with one toughness, but if you're in a counters matters deck like Traxa, you're going to have no problem at all using the Ozolith or something else to put counters on her. And if you drop four or five counters on her, then everything that comes in after that is coming in with that many counters on it. And things are going to get out of control mm. in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. So, I mean, that to me, that looks like an auto-include in Counters Matters builds from here to eternity, because it's one of the strongest counter multipliers alongside doubling season and hardened scales and Ozolith and so forth that are just so obvious to, to include. Uh, and that one's a, a rare, I think, from the main set, if I'm not mistaken. They also showed us the Mithril Coat, which is, I gotta say, Joda on the whole looks like one of the commanders that benefits the most from this set because there is a legends matters sub theme here that is completely unnecessary like there's five or six different ways to build joda right now like i i have joda transformers built for instance and anything that you give us that is under costed and leans into that legends matters theme just makes the deck better and better and better so for instance they showed us the mithril coat three mana flash indestructible equipment so you get to play it at instant speed. It's indestructible. So only farewells and the like are going to get rid of it. And then when Mithril Coat enters the battlefield, you attach it automatically to target legendary creature you control. That creature has indestructible and it has equip three to move it around. Now, the thing is about Joda, because this is a legendary artifact itself, when you cast it as a three casting cost into a properly built Jota deck, this is going to go get Velky of Lies, but you're going to get to play the flip yeah. side. So you're going to get a seven mana Planeswalker and the coat, and presumably you're going to be saving Jota at the same time for, from whatever was trying to kill him that was not an exile effect. And the amount of value you're getting there is just ridiculous, considering they also can't get the coat off Jota because this is indestructible. That's pretty gross. I mean, that's that was good enough to be banned when they cascaded into Valky and Legacy, of all things. So doing that casually at EDH, I don't know how good of a reception you're going to get, but I guess... It, it does, what is Valky's text? If he go, if Valky goes up, can you play all the cards from each player, not just one opponent? So you get to play three? So the flip side of Valky, God of Lies, is 
Tybalt Cosmic Imposter. As Tybalt enters the battlefield, you get an emblem with you may play cards exiled with Tybalt and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast those spells. Plus two is exile the top card of each player's library. Yeah. Minus three is exile target artifact or creature, which then lets you recast it. Minus eight is exile all cards from all graveyards and add triple red. Yeah, that's pretty gross. <laughs> <laughs> so getting all of that for three mana at instant speed and saving the commander that they had to get off the table. Because usually with Joda, I've, I've played with Joda, I've played against Joda in various incarnations. And when Joda shows up the first time, you've got to deal with it or else that deck snowballs so quickly. And if, there was, if they don't kill Joda the first time he comes down and you get a chance to Mithril Coat, both, <laughs> they're going to have a lot of trouble. So that one looks very nice, and and the thing is, it's not sp- it's not only specific to Joda. It's like does very busted things there, but it's also just good for three mana to be able to like hexproof your commander for that turn right. and do it with something that they can't easily take off. There's lots of commanders where the level of synergy in your deck is built so tightly to the commander that you need to keep the commander in play, and Mithrakoat really helps with that. So I think it's going to be a very popular piece of equipment, given that it has no colored pips anywhere on it. Uh, looks like one of the I would guess it will end up in the top five or ten commander cards from the set. Uh, they also showed us Denethor ruling steward, one white black for a two four human noble. Relevant that it's human. Relevant that it is a two four. At the beginning of your end step, if a creature died under your control this turn, you create a one one white human soldier creature token, and then for two sack a creature, each opponent loses one life and you gain one life. So this has blood artist-esque, you know, lineage. But the really cute thing here is as long as you're just doing it once a turn on your turn, you are just doing that life drain for free because you sack a token to get a token. Mm-hmm. So that's just, you're going to do that over and over again. And if you've got other token shenanigans going on where you're easily making a bunch of tokens, then this is, you know, potentially a three, two or three point life drain against your opponent's on every turn and if you're also playing Cambal, which is hitting them every time they cast it on creature spell if you're playing other blood artist type effects to kind of ramp up the the drain if you're in lisa where it costs them two two life every time they want to cast a spell like you're just creating this overwhelming life transfer advantage that is already hard to deal with in in edh as a strategy and it only gets better and better when they keep printing cards like this Right. I mean, I feel like anything with the life gain and or drain is always has a generally pretty broad application. So um, I think that's always a, a strong bet as long as the, the mana cost is reasonable. It's just really nice that the play pattern here where you can you can block with it with a token, then sack it, get the drain. And at the end of the turn, you're going to get the token back. So it's really hard mm-hmm. for people to profitably attack into your situation as is. Right. They also showed us. Saruman the White Hand, which is a, a, a mythic version of Saruman from the Commander deck, it looks like, if I'm not mistaken. Or is it Jumpstart? I'm not 100% on that. But it's one Grixis for a 2-5 Avatar Wizard. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, a Mass Orcs X, where X is that spell's mana value. So you don't get to go wide with a Mass. You just get to go large. But they have to then deal with that large orc army, which is like a 4-4, four, 5-5, four, five, five, a 6-6 six, six by the time you start swinging with it. If they deal with it, you just start amassing again. And it's off every non-creature spell. And as we know, with things like Young Pyromancer and Monastery Mentor and Chrome, Chrome Host Seed Shark, 
making token creatures at potentially instant speed is a very strong ability. And then tacked onto this is goblins and orcs you control have ward two. So that army you're amassing is not all that easy to deal with either. Pretty solid three color commander where you can get all your goblins and all your orcs from Lord of the Rings and then all the stuff that was printed in the past and put the mm-hmm. best of the best into a deck and run it in three colors. Hmm. Because you're getting basically getting to run a goblin deck with blue card draw and and right. and bounce and counter spells and stuff, which is not something you usually have access to. So that might just be the like the best goblin commander now. The uh, ward, another example of ward. Some I can't remember. Twitter was talking this week or last week about how wards getting on to be on everything and how they're going to have to do more uh, more mass removal to kind of combat that eventually. I don't feel like it's that prevalent, but I like the mechanic, generally speaking. I mean, Hexproof was the fixed Shroud, and Ward is the fixed Hexproof. Right, yeah. Where you're, yeah. you know, you're, you're allowing for interaction, but you're, they have to make choices, um, which is just a good thing, I think. Um, they also showed off Faramir, Faramir Field Commander. 3-3 three, three human soldier for 4. At the beginning of an end, your end step, if a creature died under your control this turn, you draw a card. Whenever the ring tempts you, if you choose a creature other than Faramir as your ring bearer, create a 1-1 one, one white human soldier creature token. Looks like that slots right into the Sam and Frodo deck because you're going to have small creatures and tokens and stuff that are going to die. You're going to be getting tempted by the ring all over the place. And this thing is just going to be a really solid... Uh, keeper of the cord style value engine in white white keep getting new tools <laughs> it'll be good soon i guess oh so, so what's your experience i mean you know me i don't play as much edh i mean is white getting there now that with all these new printings or is it still you know modest relative to other colors yeah i mean ristic study and mystic remora are so good at their mm-hmm. casting cost that you know, they've had to try pretty hard, but they've, I think it's more like they've given some very powerful cards to some specific white strategies. So for instance, sure. tokens got Benny Brax, where on any turn, if you've made a token, you draw a card. Um, so you're getting, you know, these pretty strong, easy to trigger incremental advantages. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's Wedding Ring and, and a bunch of other stuff. Like there's seven or eight relevant cards. Esper Sentinel is probably at the top of the heap. Um, from MH2 where an early you know turn one two three Esper Sentinel is going to do a ton of work and draw you a bunch of cards and that's that's what the color needed and it's what they've been you know pushing towards right right they also showed us Lord of the Nazgul three blue black four three Wraith Noble flying wraiths you control have protection from ring bearers more cute than super important. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, create a 3-3 black wraith creature token with menace. Then if you control nine or more wraiths, wraiths you control have base power and toughness 9-9 nine, nine until end of turn. Well, that's just a fun deck, period, because there's nine of the Nazgul with different art that already, if they all come into play at the same time together, all get gigantic. And then mm-hmm. even if you've got a few of them, you cast, you get this guy into play, you cast a few instants and sorceries, make a few 3-3 three, three wraiths, and then all of a sudden they're all 9-9s. Nine it's not going to like overturn the format or something, but there's yeah, a sure. lot of fun that's flavor fun. wins here. And right. that's just, just a solid example thereof. The uh, fiery inscription, that seemed pretty good to me. The It's a one red, two colorless 
when it enters the battlefield of enchantment the ring tempts you and then whenever you cast an into a sorcery it deals two damage to each opponent so it's kind of like the goblin that does the same effect but on an enchantment uh, which i would assume is a little bit more permanent and harder to remove much bigger deal to have it on an enchantment where sweepers aren't gonna you know push it away so that's probably going to last for most of the game and is going to do a ton of damage in the Spells Matters decks. I also saw Stern Scolding, uh, more from the competitive side, but that is uh, a one blue for counter target creature spell with power or toughness, two or less. And so people are talking about that for modern in terms of the fact they could counter Solitude, counter Grief, a number of other, uh, yeah, obviously Ragavan and things like that. Um, I'll be curious to see. I mean, obviously these blue cards, there's a lot of them that are very targeted. Um, so it's unclear whether it'll break through, but that's one that I was watching from more competitive standpoint, uh, along with flowering of the white tree, which is the two white for a legendary enchantment legendary creatures you control get plus two plus one and have ward one and then non-legendary creatures get plus one one so um this is you know really leaning it's like a glorious anthem for any creature at two which is very aggressive in general Uh, obviously it's enchantment so you can't stack them uh but in addition if you're putting out say you know the kind of mox amber ragavan dahlia um, you know, all the kind of enchant the, the Hound, the Gideons, all of those type of two ones legendaries for one, you could really build a deck that, you know, I think could um, potentially be viable. And that's something people have tried in the past, uh, just based on kind of legendary matters to get Mox Amber to work. Um, and it's never really taken off, but this is, uh, I was kind of doing the math. I mean, you could have basically turn three kill pretty easily with this. Um, but not having the you know dopey creatures that if it, if you don't hit the enchantment that you're just dead in the water. This is a super pushed anthem, right? Like mm, super it, pushed, super it, pushed. And the fact that it's legendary holds it back a little bit and constructed for sure. But in the deck that would want it, you just you know you just wouldn't care. <laughs> yeah. So turn turn one. Think of this. So I was mapping it out of my head the other day. So Ragavan. Uh, play Mox Amber, then play a you know Isamaru or Gideon, whatever. You have four power, but zero damage. Next turn, you play like Zergo plus this, swing in for um, you know eight damage, and then uh, you have twelve power on the board. Turn three, you play any two legends and a Bushwhacker. You're hitting for twenty seven, and even without the Bushwhacker, they're still probably dead if they're not playing removal. When, and along the way, if they chose to Unholy Heat or Fatal Push something, they had to pay one extra so they couldn't play their make right. their own other play. I mean, so it's it's creating drag while it's accelerating you, which exactly. is exactly what an aggro deck likes. Right, and if you're playing Thalia, so say you play down a Thalia turn two, that means they have to play the tax and they have to pay the the ward one. So to, to do anything, you have to pay three then in that case, which is just <laughs> breaking. Well, yeah, and this is the thing, like, over in Commander, again, say in Joe to the Unifier, where all my creatures are are legendary, I go Mox, Amber, Ragavan, turn two this, turn three Gwenna, turn four Joda, and all my stuff is absolutely gigantic. No one wants to pay the extra mana to kill anything, and it only affects my creatures. It's it's a very oh, good yeah, card. Oh yeah, it is you control. That's funny, I didn't even catch that. Yeah, it's a very, very good card, and likely brickable at whatever you know lows it hits and the thing is there are so many good cards in the set that a lot of these good cards that are mostly going to see edh play 
are going to get cheap. They're going to have to because there's just so much in here. Right, especially with the box toppers, which I'm sure we'll talk yeah, about. Yeah, I mean, sure. yeah, we'll get we'll get to that shortly. There's a really good dragon that was shown off today that oh, looks yeah. looks like it uh, does not come out of the main set, so it's probably in one of the decks. It's Cavern Horde Dragon, seven double red, six six, flying trample haste. It costs X less to cast, where X is the greatest number of artifacts an opponent controls. And whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you create a treasure token for each artifact that player controls. So you get a lot of setup benefit here where you get to like surprise the board with this thing out of nowhere on a turn, three, third, fourth, fifth turn. Most people are tapped out. They've done their first thing, like cast their first commander or whatever. Somebody's going to have a soul ring and a signet. Maybe they've got an Esper Sentinel out too. So they've got two or three artifacts and you get to cast this for four or five, swing in and make treasures equal to that person's artifacts. It's probably not going to get blocked. Uh, It's going to hit them because it's got trample. They've given this a lot of kind of (laughs) overpowered this card to do what it's supposed to do. It's pretty hard to get blown out when you play it. And then in the late game, if somebody's been sitting on a pile of treasure, like I think somebody had 30 treasures or something in one of our games last weekend um, off of Smothering Tithe and no one paying the tax forever and ever. That person has to decide whether they want to sack all the treasures on contact with the dragon so that you don't get the treasures or let you have them. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a one power level down ish from ancient copper dragon, like one, one and a half. I don't know. You know, it's still it's similar levels, but this has more variance. I actually think this is a better card because mm-hmm. ancient copper dragon requires seven mana. And if it uh, hits six. And, and, six, sorry, six. But and if it hits, yes, it makes an average of 10 treasures. Right. But this thing can be cast for, you know, two mana relatively like consistently and if not Mm -hmm. two three or four very very often and then is gonna make three or four treasure and then keep hitting people till they kill it and keep making treasure so very good in the ur dragon probably very good in corvold there's gonna be a lot of red decks that are gonna want to make use of this especially alongside some of these other cards because they showed us this other one wake the dragon four black red sorcery Create a 6-6 black and red dragon creature token with flying menace, and whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, gain control of target artifact that player controls, and with a flashback of 8 to go ahead and do it again later. So if somebody drops their Aetherflex Reservoir and they're ready to go off next turn, no problem. Your dragons probably have haste, and you just go ahead and swing the token in and steal that thing away from them. So plenty of tools for the Ur-Dragon getting his, getting his reprint later this summer in Commander Masters. Uh, more tokens matter. I mean, counters matter stuff. Aragorn company leader, one green, white, three, three for a legendary creature, human ranger. Whenever the ring tempts you, if you have a ring bearer that is not Aragorn, put your choice of a counter from among first strike, vigilance, death, strike, death touch, and lifelink on Aragorn. Whenever you put one or more counters on Aragorn, you put one of those on another target creature. So you make Frodo the ring bearer. Aragorn gives him either first strike, vigilance, death touch, or lifelink, and he gets it as well. So you can you can take that whole counters matters sub theme and stuff it into a Traxa. You can play it in Sam and Frodo. With you can put it in Merry and Pippin. It, there's there's going to be lots of decks that want this so that they can get the creature through to do whatever it's trying to do. Right. And and they've given 
The counter thing, I think it just doesn't strike me as, like, that exciting or fun, which is why something like that, I'm just like, meh. But I'm sure if you're playing that deck, you gotta you gotta run it, because it's, it's pretty good. Well, I mean, you think about this Aragorn and the uh, his wife-to-be, what's her name, Arwen, uh, Weaver of Hope, between the two of them, right? Um, the creatures mm-hmm. are coming in in bigger... When so you play Arwen, then you play Aragorn into Arwen. Aragorn gets the plus one plus one, but also gives it to Arwen. And then the subsequent creatures that come into play are getting bigger from Arwen. Right. And, and then they're getting a counter, which also gives it to Aragorn. You know what I'm saying? Like there's there's a whole mm-hmm. bunch of synergy they're setting up here where the cards all interlock, and right. it's it's going to play out really well in this format in particular. They also showed us Dawn of a New Age, another one of these mid range like mid tier white value cards that they've been trying to introduce into the format one in a white for an enchantment when it enters the battlefield it has a hope counter on it for each creature you control so say in something like Ginny fey where you're going to have six to ten creatures on a fairly regular basis you're going to play this it's going to get six to ten counters on it at the beginning of your end step you remove a hope counter if you do you draw a card and then when it runs out of hope counters you sack it and gain four life so it's just a card uh, a card per turn cycle in token decks from here to eternity so it's probably like two mana draw four two mana draw six something like that in in your average game which is totally fine not it's no ristic study but it will get played they also showed us a bunch of good red cards there was the red meat hook massacre revealed today spiteful banditry x double red whenever it enters the battlefield it deals x to each creature so you've already got a solid sweeper there and then whenever one or more creatures your opponent's control die, you create a treasure token. Ability triggers only once each turn. So people are like, oh, you, you kill 10 creatures, but you only get one treasure. Yes, true, but you just wiped the board, and this is all just upside up, on top of that, where you're going to get, instead of getting the life drain or life gain you like you would get from Meat Hook Massacre, you're getting free treasures every time a creature dies for the rest of the game. And that's not powerful enough once it's sitting on the table that anyone's ever going to point a removal spell at it. And as such, it becomes a red smothering tithe where you're just, if you play this like early mid game and just wipe a few creatures, then for the rest of the game, you're creating a treasure token and it's on any turn. So it's not once per turn cycle like that white enchantment we just looked at. It's once per player turn. So if, if you manage to kill or somebody else kills through combat, a creature on each person's turn out of four turns, you could be getting four treasures a turn, which is very, very solid. So I think that's probably going to be one of the banner mythics uh, of the set for EDH. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that it's mythic. Yeah, the, I mean, these days, rares are dime a dozen, but it's a mythic. Um, that 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 lends a lot to it just as something to follow and look at and like you said we we saw what happened with meat hood massacre this is something you, you, you know i don't know if you ever do it with meat hook but like you could throw down for two you know if you just you're, you yep. don't have anything else to do just throw it down and you know worry about it later and like you said it's whenever an opponent creature dies so even if you're not doing it if other people are taking things out you're you're getting that value back, and if you're you're only paying two for it, it doesn't take much to to you know be neutral on that. Obviously, you're down a card, but if you're building your deck right and you're drawing a lot, that shouldn't be a problem. Speaking of two mana value engines, they also showed us legendary artifact Horn of the Mark for two mana as a rare in the main set. Whenever two or more creatures you control attack a player, look at the top five cards of your library. You can reveal a creature card from among them and put it in your hand, rest on the bottom in random order. This feels like the kind of card that would normally be an equipment where you would have a comes into play cost and an equip cost. But no, this just sits for two mana for the rest of the game. And anytime you attack with at least two creatures, you get to 
go grab one creature out of the top five and put it in your hand. That is very solid value. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, for two, could, that's that's great. And could be considered a white card <laughs> from that perspective, right? Like, because right. a lot of the white decks are, are go wide or go fast, and the Horn of the Mark works very, very well there. So uh, another right. really nice colorless artifact that fits in everywhere, kind of like the Mithril does, and, and looks pretty solid. Kraken decks got a really good Kraken. Watcher in the Water, three double blue for a 9-9 nine, nine with no downside. Watcher in the water enters the battlefield tapped with nine stun counters on it. I guess that's the downside. (laughs) Okay, I don't know if I can call nine stun counters no downside. Whenever you draw a card during an opponent's turn, create a 1-1 blue tentacle creature token. Whenever a tentacle you control dies, untap up to one target Kraken and put a stun counter on up to one target non-land permanent. So it's not actually stunned for nine turns, because as soon as you draw a card, you're getting a tentacle. As soon as the tentacle dies, you can untap your Kraken. So presumably you're doing this in a situation where you can manipulate when that's going to happen, and then you get to stun something in return for not having the Watcher be stunned. So it's a pretty cute in the Kraken builds that have been floating around, although they, they are certainly pretty far from the EDH mainstream. They showed us Andril, Flame of the West, which is gorgeous art of Aragorn carrying his sword. Uh, Three mana and two to equip. Equipped creature gets plus three, plus one. Whenever equipped creature attacks, you get two tapped 1-1 white spirit creature tokens with flying. If the creature is legendary, instead create two of those tokens that are tapped and attacking. People seemed very meh about this. It's better than it looks, though. This is five mana to get rolling, and you're immediately, immediately getting two flyers out of it. And if you put it onto a commander or another legendary, then the tokens are just attacking. So if you were playing it with that anthem we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. the attacking, let's just say that the attacking commander was a 3-3, but this on it, it's a 6-4. With the other thing, it's an 8-5, and the spirits are 2-2 flyers that are attacking. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised there the, the casting cost isn't a little less is a little i wish it was a little more aggressive like two and two mm-hmm. three and two you'd be you could be casting a sword there's probably better things to be doing but you know it's interesting and fun for sure trying to decide if i think this is i guess it's a tier below your average sword yeah i think so but there there are there are swords that don't automatically generate more value than two one one white flyers oh yeah this is better than some swords but uh, of the swords you'd actually play you know i think this is yeah one step below so yeah i I mean i don't see this as being a likely spec as a mythic it's got to be one of the cheaper mythics out of out of the ones that we've seen what else did they show off here oh yeah this thing's crazy Elven Chorus, three and a green for an enchantment. You may look at the top card of your library at any time. You may cast creature spells from the top of your library, and all your creatures get the Birds of Paradise ability to tap for a mana of any color. Instant green super staple for EDH. Yeah, I mean, green, there's so many options, but it seems solid. There's a lot of good green cards in here. Honestly. It's basically the two abilities of Augur of Autumn. Right. Which is a... 2-3, but that one only lets you play lands from the top of your library. And then if you have Coven, which is you control three or more creatures with different powers, you may cast creature spells in the top of your library. So now, for one more mana, you get something that can't be swept or point removed away as easily as Augur. Augur is in 60,000 decks since it was wow. released. That means Elven Chorus, give it a couple years, is probably going to be in 100k. Mm-hmm. 
because you're giving you're making everything a, a bird at the same time right I know you already talked about it in cast, I think, previously, but I didn't get to, so I'm going to again. The, <laughs> delighted, half, the delighted Halfling card, you know, I, I, I think people talked about it right when it was announced, and no one's talked about it since. This is the one green for a, a Halfling citizen, a tap for a colorless, or add a mana for any color, spend it only to cast legendary spells, and those spells can't be countered. Uh, that card just seems like it's going to see some modern play, right? I mean... Like, maybe not, because there's just other things that, you know, tap better for colors, but having that uh, can't-be-countered clause, I don't know. Maybe more in Legacy, where that's, you know, you're trying to play through forces and things, but that card, I, I really uh, again, like Again, amazing in Jota in, yeah, in yeah. Commander, right? Yeah. They also showed us Shelob, Child of Ungoliant. Four black green for an 8-8 spider demon, death touch, ward two. Other spiders you control have death touch and ward two. Whenever another creature dealt damage this turn by a spider you control dies, and keep in mind they all have death touch, create a token that's a copy of that creature except it's a food artifact with two tap, sacrifice this artifact, you gain three life, and it loses all other card types. That is so fun, because whenever you you kill one of your... uh, uh, Another creature died because it got into a tussle with one of your spiders... It becomes a food token, but it keeps all of its abilities. So if its abilities are handy to you, you get to have them. Do you see a lot of spider decks? No, this I think... Is, no, no, I I, the, the point is people are going to build Sheila because it's... Oh, uh, okay. It's, you know, it will be now the default spider gotcha. sure, uh, sure, commander sure. instead of it, 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 Ikshana or whatever it was called from the Innistrad uh, cycle. Oh, yeah, that, that card was fine. Was, wasn't that um, monocolor too? I think it had an activated ability that was black. Oh, yep, yep. I think you're right. Yeah, lose drain life or something equals spiders and scry, I think it was, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, this seems better. They also showed off Elrond, Lord of Rivendell, as an uncommon. Two and a blue. Whenever Elrond, Lord of Rivendell, or another creature enters the battlefield under your control, scry one. If it's the second time the ability has returned, the ring tempts you. Um, so in decks like my Saint Traft build, um, where creatures are entering the battlefield pretty much constantly, or any other kind of Jeskai tokens, uh, style build, you're getting to scry and have, and build up the ring abilities pretty quickly. Uh, so that's not going to be bad. Oh, Great Hall of the Citadel, you know, yet another ridiculous card for Jota land that taps for colorless or one and tap add two mana in any combination of colors spend this mana only to cast legendary spells well the legends matters decks don't care because they're all legends mm-hmm. they sh- showed us grima worm tongue two and a black for a one four opponents can't gain life which is much better in edh than it is elsewhere tap sack another creature target player loses a life and if the sacrifice creature was legendary a mass orcs two. That's a handy little card for the the life gain decks because one of the nice things, one of the only ways I can keep pace with a Lisa deck is if I'm gaining a bunch of life myself, like I'm playing a Loro or something. Uh huh. But if Lisa plays Worm Tongue and nobody else gets to gain any life, that's gonna be troublesome. Uh, Slip on the ring, really great common exile target creature you own, return to the battlefield, and the ring tempts you. Like all these cards that have the ring tempts you as the added text are just strict upgrades to the regular versions of those cards for the most part. Yeah, I mean that the ring the ring tempts you thing. I you know I'll be curious to hear in a year how much you hear that phrase. But for right now, I mean it seems like a lot of people are talking about it. Right? It seems like a even though it, you know it has only upside, people seem to like it. 
Yeah, I mean, let's review what it does. The first time the ring right. tempts you, your ring bearer becomes legendary and can't be blocked by creatures with greater power. So basically, you can just pick the player that has blockers that are too big to block you, so you get in for free. Whenever your ring bearer attacks, you draw a card, then discard a card, so you get to loot. Then whenever your ring bearer becomes blocked by a creature, that creature's controller has to sack it at end of combat. So if they have something too small to kill your creature, it's dead no matter what. And then even if it's got, would normally be indestructible or something, they still have to sack it. Whenever your ring bearer deals combat damage to a player, each opponent loses three life. So in the decks that want to be tempting, they're just trying to build up to that point where whenever the ring bearer hits and it's almost impossible to block, they're losing an extra three. So it's, it's solid. Like, it's not something where I, I, outside of a Sam and Frodo build, that I intend to have a strong sub-theme going. But a lot of these cards are costed so that you're just going to end up playing them by default and, and getting at least the first level of declaring a ring bearer and getting it in there, which in a lot of decks is just is going to have upside in terms of, you know, for instance, in a ninja's deck, getting a making a creature unblockable lets me then swap it in for a Blightsteel Colossus and kill you. Right. Yeah, yeah. They showed us Arwen Mortal Queen, which is the mythic version of Arwen. Uh, comes into play with an indestructible counter. You can remove an indestructible counter from Arwen, and another target creature gains indestructible until end of turn. You can put a plus one, plus one counter and a lifelink counter on that creature, and a plus one, plus one counter and lifelink counter on Arwen. So this is all just counters matters shenanigans where none of the cards look all that great on their own. But when you put them all on the table at the same time, they start doubling and tripling counters. They start swapping counters and multiplying them and things just get silly. They showed us the Palantir of Orthanc, three for a legendary artifact. At the beginning of your end step, put an influence counter on Palantir and scry two. Then target opponent may have you draw a card. If they don't, you mill X cards where X is the number of influence counters on Palantir of Orthanc, and that player loses life equal to the total mana value of those cards. <laughs> so <laughs> they are not going to want you to do that mill thing, because after that's smacked them a couple times, they're going to start to realize that this is kind of a protection rackety type deal where they think, oh, I'm just going to pay life and you're not going to get those cards. But pretty soon they've paid, you know, two or three turns later, they realize they don't have any life to spare anymore. And they're going right. to have to start letting you scry two draw cards, scry two draw card. Yeah, I, I kind of want to try this out in my Green Tron build just to hit people with Ulamogs <laughs> for 10. Just just to, for the fun value. People would be so upset losing to that. <laughs> Pull it out with a Wish Karn board, Karn sideboard, and just have it as a one of and just have it ready to go for when I, when I can irk somebody. There was also a red card they showed off today that I've lost track of in the list here, but it, uh, it basically lists, like, lets you steal all of an opponent's creatures, and they untap and have haste. You can't attack them, but presumably you're doing this after player A alpha, tries to alpha strike player B, they barely hang on, a lot of their stuff dies, and then you, just, you go next and you just steal all the stuff from player A and hit up player B again and finish them off. Yeah. Call for aid. Call 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 for aid is the card. Four and a red sorcery. Uh, sh you can't sack the creatures because that would be ridiculous, uh, and you can't attack the player you stole them from. But you do get to double up on an alpha strike, which is probably going to knock somebody out of the game. Mm -hmm. So I like the basic lands that are in the set. They're ma maps of the various regions within the books. Very handsome. 
Uh, may as well jump into the box toppers that were unveiled today. Uh, we had plenty of complaints from pro traders who were holding a variety of these cards as potential specs. Some of the ones included are Sword of Hearth and Home, which of course is an MH2 sword that people were hoping would ratchet up. I've already been making money on this card because I bought mine in Japan, uh, so they, they were already cheap and sellable. But if you were buying them at North American prices and holding, hoping to ratchet that up sometime this year, you've, you know, certainly going to be facing pressure from the box topper version. Sword of the Animus, no big deal. Thorn of Amethyst, no big deal. Cabal Coffers, people were kind of pissed off about because, of course, that's another one we got in MH2. But, of course, that was two years ago. So, you know, can we, are we, are we really in an era anymore where you can expect to wait more than two years? It's kind of a coin flip as to whether you're going to get away with it or not. Given that this one is Minas Morgul, I would expect this version to be pretty popular. They also showed Castle Ardenvale. That doesn't really matter much. Gemstone Caverns is getting a necessary reprint. It never really came down from the Time Spiral Remastered release. Uh, I think it's the most expensive card in that set, if I'm it's not mistaken. It's crazy expensive. The foils are over 200 last time I looked. It's obscene it's been on and the list the base versions like 65 70 yeah it's been on the list along the way they're about 60 dollars, and so are the time spiral versions uh so you know this this reprint was necessary it's a nice looking version it's called glittering caves of aglorond horizon canopy as bag end caracas as white tower of ecthelion doesn't really matter for anybody other than legacy players since you can't play caracas in edh Corehaven does see a decent amount of EDH play, but isn't wasn't really a spec on anybody's radar. Mouth of Ronom will be one of those feel-bad box toppers. A Boro Palace in the Clouds as the Buckleberry Fairy. That's fine, no big deal one way or the other. Pillar of the Peroons had already been, I think, tapped in Double Masters 2022, if I'm not mistaken. So... This just kind of drives it into the ground. Reflecting Pool, I think cheapest version was 7 or $8 last I checked. So that reprint here holds that one back for a while. And then I guess the other big one from today was Urborg Tomb of Yawgmoth as the Dead Marshes. I guess they it was kind of irresistible to, to use Urborg and Cabal Coffers as Minas Morgul and the Dead Marshes, respectively. Yeah. I mean, you know my thoughts on reprints. I There is absolutely no reason to reprint a sword two years after a set that's been in print more than any other in recent history. Well, well, to expand to expand on your point, it's debatable whether, whether Modern Horizons 2 has ever gone out of print. Yeah, exactly. So, you, you, Swatsy knew on the front end that swords take a while to grow. They knew it was going to be in print for a long time. And they still put it in here. It 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 is a waste of reprint equity. It doesn't help anyone. That's I mean, reprints are supposed to help players, right? And when the message is being sent that if you buy a card, that's probably going to re you know you buy it a year after set releases, you're going to probably get reprinted in a year. It just means the only time people are going to buy cards is when they absolutely need it for their deck. They're not going to say, oh well. This came out, I'm going to get a copy, so, you know, it doesn't get more expensive later. It, no one's going to do that. Um, you know, so speculators, whatever. I mean, I'm holding these, I'm going to get hit. I don't think Watsy has me in mind when they're doing their reprint policy, and they shouldn't. But for the average collector, this is the type of thing that is unforgivable in terms of policy. It is a bad policy choice 
to reprint something that they knew would not be super expensive and they knew was in a set that had so much other value that this was not going to be crazy. Um, and even if it was, they had time to pivot, you know, when they saw the te- price being tempered and pull it. And it all goes back from, from my perspective that every one of these sets is now a reprint set, right? We just did this with artifacts. Now we're doing it here. And if you just got rid of some of that, then you could have excellent reprint sets that are limited in scope and are doing what you need to do without doing what you don't need to do. They're doing so many that they have to do this because there's no other option. That's my rant for the day. If I was to adjust the current reprint schedule and policy, I would print slightly more new cards and include them in these box topper situations or su- or you know multiverse legends subset situations instead of double and triple tapping things here and there. I don't have a big deal. I wouldn't have really minded if you got Urborg or Cabal Coffers here. Both both at the same time seems like a little much. It's no big deal to give us Pillar of the Perunes last summer, but then give it a couple of years before you go back to it. If there is something like a sort of hearth and home that isn't a super staple, like for instance, Shieldred in standard getting the double tap six months later didn't end up really slowing her down because from Dominaria United to Phyrexia all will be one. The the level of demand for Shieldred was so high that giving us a fresh premium version did almost nothing to put to pump the brakes. And it ended up on the exact price acceleration curve that I predicted in the fall. But with something like sort of Hearth and Home, where yeah, it's in tons of EDH decks, but it's still readily available at $12 as a Mythic from a premium set, I fully agree with you that they could give that another year or two to mature. Not from a for a fi- from a finance perspective, but just because the market is not in need of the card. And the market will respond better, and you will actually sell more product if instead of that reprint, you inserted another new card. Because yeah. car- cards being replaced, uh, both by pace of hype cycle acceleration, where cards like Aluren can just be forgotten because it's been so many years since they've ever been in a product, is less of a problem than an accelerated pace of reprint on cards that don't really need it. Yeah. I mean, when you look at some of these, you're, you go, yeah, of course, you know, why wouldn't they have reprinted that, right? Like, Aboro and all these others that, you know, even Urborg, right, where it got reprinted in Time Spell Remastered, but it was a short print run product. It was, it bounced back, you know, pretty quickly. Uh, even that, I'm like, okay, if people see Urborg, if they are surprised, they're missing something, right? But when you're seeing cards that are getting, getting reprinted and you're getting surprised over and over and over again, that's the problem. And so, it's not the volume, it's the, the choices. And the the volume is driving the choices. Yeah, That's how they're connected. It's not because uh, they're making bad choices, because they're printing too many reprints all over the place that it's driving them to have to do this because they have to fill slots. Now, that being said, they already did this, this to us with the Ultimate Masters Box Hopper version of Urborg, and those are currently $200. And the foils are yeah the the foils are $200 so if this box topper holds even a quarter of that price or a fifth of that price 
you're going to be doing just fine. One of the mitigating factors, I think, to these undercutting the value of the cards in question. So like Urborg is generally speaking a $38 card right now. There are UMA copies, there's Time Spiral Remastered copies, there's Magic 2015, there's The List, Planar Chaos. You know, is that going to be a $5 card now because there's a box topper in every product? No. It's it's going to be a 15 to $20 card, probably. But that's fine because it's a rare, not a mythic. And there's a pretty good chance that the foil version of the box toppers ends up being drained out over some number of years and maybe it's not a future $200 card but it's probably still a future double up from whatever its low ends up being yeah assuming none of these get double tapped by commander masters uh, commander masters which you know we've seen that happen more often than uh i i think that's unlikely like i wouldn't be surprised if one of the things in here gets double tapped in commander masters with a regular version, but I don't think it's, there's a lot of other stuff to tackle there. Like a lot of the stuff that I've flagged as likely being in that set was not hit here. So they, they've got some room to, to maneuver there. All right. Over under how many of these cards will be in commander masters from the box topper specifically. Uh, sure. One. I'm going to go looking through the list here. I, I think coffers and Urborg are the most likely. And I, the thing is that these are the box toppers are not limited to collector boosters here. They're in draft and set boosters, and Lord of the Rings draft and set boosters are going to be in print forever. And we already know that we're getting additional a, a, a re-release of the collector boosters minus the serialized cards in November with new art and a new foil treatment. So this set's going to be in print. Is they're they're telling us up front, Lord of the Rings will be in print forever like Modern Horizons 2, and even more so because even the CBs are catching a reprint within six months. I'm going to say two and a half. I'm going to hedge. What, what are your top picks for that? I think Ancient Tomb, I think Urborg, and I think something else maybe. But those, okay. those I mean, two are what, what raise my eyebrows. Of the earlier revealed box toppers, Ancient Tomb is a, is a solid pick for sure. Uh, Yavamaya, Cradle of Growth, Cavern. Yeah. Yavamaya getting a reprint is another pretty egregious one. Shadow Spear, potentially. Yeah, Shadow Spear. I could see Wasteland again. They don't care about the price of Wasteland. Bajuka Bog. Well, yeah, I wouldn't even count that one. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it would be a reprint, but it's reprinted so many times. All right. So, I mean, that's... Uh, not absolutely everything of note from this week. But that's a good overview. Uh, and I guess uh, next week when Cliff's back, we will wrap things up with the final cards because we're only a week and a half out here from the pre-release. And uh, I would imagine that is going to be a very popular pre-release indeed. Oh, man. I'm going to have to go on my Amazon and make a choice about uh, some of the pre-orders I made for this set. For those that don't know, you can pre-order things and and uh, cancel anytime. And so there's no harm in ever pre-ordering as long as you remember to make your decision before so before the set releases. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, what what was the am- best Amazon price on CBs? Uh, so I pre-ordered specifically the um, Commander deck sets of four. Yeah. And let me check on them. So I ordered, I think. Three sets of ten, just because I was like, well, 
you know, maybe this will be a really interesting commander set. Uh, blows up. All right, here we go. Oh, no, those are Doctor Who. I've got those in the hopper as well. Oh, I'm, I'm much less bullish on Doctor Who product. Yeah, I'll probably cancel that for sure. God, I ordered it so long ago, I can't even find it in my most recent three-month history. I'll have to find it later and circle back with you. But I don't think that price was probably that great. I'll probably cancel, but it was uh, no risk play. I think the decks are probably good long-term holds, but in terms of whether they explode short-term like the Warhammer decks did, I think it largely depends on combination of the reception of the four decks and the print run. If they mm-hmm. if they manufacture the appearance of the print run being lower than it will eventually be by short packing the first couple waves and they start to sell out at LGSs, then you could very easily see like the Sam and Frodo deck go to $80, like 80 to hundred dollars and at retail. And then that's going to drive potential quick flips off Amazon. So I did find it. So it was 180 for a set of four and it is still currently in stock for that. So that's one I'm probably going to cancel. But in contrast, at least as of right now, the doctor who one um, I ordered and it has been out of stock for quite a while actually. Um, So I'll be curious to see that one might turn out more like uh, more like the Warhammer decks potentially where they short printed them, but we'll see on that. So I guess the last thing for us to chew on a bit is the, the current highest bid is a half million dollars from Cassius Marsh, ex NFL player and his uh, LGS that he's running on the West coast. Do you have uh, thoughts on that price point? Yeah. So I think my biggest thought, I don't have a thought on the price point per se, because I mean, this is a unique item. It's new. I think anyone who says they know exactly what's happening is kidding themselves. Um, As we've seen, we've already blown through many people's predictions. What I will say is in a discord, some people were saying that, you know, this is clear evidence that it's worth 750,000 or million, because if it wasn't, why would these people pay that? And my response was, it's a bet. Right, They are taking a, a choice to say, I think it's worth more than this, and I think somebody will pay that. But you know, I highly doubt they have somebody under contract in case when they find it, they can flip it immediately, and they've already wrapped up a deal. And so it is a bet by these vendors to, one, you know, I think also to promote their brand, because if they're the highest offer, they're getting a lot of Twitter shares and things like that from it. But in addition, they're, they're making an educated guess, potentially, that it's worth more than that. But that doesn't mean it is. Until somebody ponies up the money at 600k or 750k, it's not worth anything until people are willing to pay it. So I think that's my biggest thing, is that these are people making choices and bets in the market, but it's not indicating what the market actually is, because they're resellers. This is for them. It's for them to resell. There's a big difference between the price point of the most eager buyer and the depth of the market at that price point. You can have a $500,000 item that has 10,000 people in the world that are willing to pay that price, which will then drive the price up at auction. Or you can have an item where there are only three people in the world willing to pay that price, in which case it will be very hard to ever resell at a profit. Now, I will say that if if I have cash flow available that where I can relatively easily fund a $500,000 purchase, I don't necessarily need to be looking to flip at seven fifty dollars or 800000 You'd be pretty happy with that level of capitalization to put it to work in the short term, like one to three months, and get back out fifty dollars or 100000 Oh, yeah, I agree. I agree completely. If yeah, you can flip from five hundred to five fifty dollars or six hundred, dollars you're fine with that. That's, that's yeah. a very solid return. Yep, I agree. But that's, that's not the numbers people are 
throwing out there. <laughs> Everything's been a guess other other than the offers. And as and I think the point you made that's the most salient is the the value of the marketing. Because anybody that's making an offer like this has already triangulated that just getting their the name of their business and their website listed in in an associated press wire shared version of the the press release for when the ring is found that cascades into nerd and tech sites all over the world and you end up being mentioned on 500 different major websites and picked up in google news and apple feeds on people's cell phones and stuff and that the value of that traffic to your business could easily be worth a significant portion of the cost of the item itself yeah, even if, I mean, an ideal, you know, you just want the marketing, you just flip it to somebody else for the exact same as you paid for it. But you got a lot out of that just in terms of. Oh, yeah. Value. And that's why it's and that's why there was an offer last week that was floating around on Twitter where it was you had to hand the card over to them and they would guarantee 400,000. But you had to sign an NDA that so they could claim they found it. Because they want to be the name of the person that's like, Bob Douglas found the ring and blah, 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 blah. And they also want to be able to claim, you know, whatever talk show appearances or pod, much more likely podcast appearances or article interviews or trips to New Zealand to take the ring to the top of the mountain or whatever is going to come with finding the ring. Right. So it's going to be very interesting to see how all that plays out. And overall, I think it's good for the game. I mean, anything, this is brilliance on Wizards' part, right? Like, there's so many things you can criticize Wizards for over the last five years. But there are also a lot of things they're doing very, very well. And even if I don't want to necessarily have something like this attempted with every set, uh, I think for these big IP crossovers, it makes perfect sense. And this is a ton of media coverage that's going to come their way. Already has. I mean, they've or, the, yeah. the topic has already been broadly covered, and there is certain to be follow up once the ring is discovered. My general rule of thumb is: if I'm hearing about something from my family back in the Midwest, then I know it's getting broad coverage. <laughs> it's jumped not, the shark, yeah. Yeah, and what you know, there's been political things that's happened too, but this is one on the magic front that people have messaged me about. Did you see this? I'm like, yes, of course I've seen this. <laughs> this is this is what I do, but. Uh, yeah, it's so this is one. I think they like you said, they did it well. It harms literally no one. It makes them extra profit. It makes extra hype. I think it checks all the boxes. The key is self-restraint going forward, which we know is not Watsi's forte. Uh, but I hope that they can, you know, take this pr- presumably success according, you know, as long as it launches as we expect. Uh, but take that success and roll it into future things in a way that makes sense and isn't like, getting retro you know old border products where it was like oh this is cool and it was like oh wait no it's not because now it's in everything um and yeah i think they'll probably lean towards that and ruin it but i hope they don't (laughs) yeah i'm totally fine with where we're at in terms of how they're working premium options into the standard product cycle and all of the premium products i'm even fine with the price the higher price points of lord of the rings given everything they have put on offer there, where there are halo foils available, serialized soul rings, you have a chance at the at the one ring as as minuscule as it may be, very solid box toppers and tons of good EDH cards with a few a handful of cards that have potential crossover uh, for modern. 
that's about as much as any of us could have expected to get out of this thing. All right. Thank you so much for uh, joining me while Cliff is on vacation. We're going to have Derek back a couple more times this summer as, as folks rotate, rotate out on their summer schedules. Where can folks find you online, my friend? Yeah, primarily folks can find me online and Twitter at Oko Assassin, as well as in the MTG Price Discord. How about you, James? You guys can find me on Twitter, as usual, at MGG Critic, as well as via my occasional articles on MGGPrice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I would also like to remind our listeners to check out the MGGPrice.com ProTrader service for just $7.99 a month, or $9.99 a month if you want access to our fantastic group buys. $109.99 if you want the annual rate on that. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool, nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best of Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code FINANCE5 during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% on your order and to support this podcast. That brings us to the end of another episode of MTG Fast Finance Podcast. As always, appreciate the discussion, James. Thanks for having me back. Thank you, Derek, and we will see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.